0: listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am delighted to have Aaron Morley on with us. Aaron, is it true that you're actually uh, a Forbes 30 under 30 candidate as well?
0: Uh, yeah, yes, that is true. Um, very thankful Uh to have been uh, nominated and uh, and received the award this year for uh, the Sports and Games category, along along some other uh, Ubisoft employees, um, it was a bit of a bit of a surprise. You kind of stealth nominated. You don't know until someone reaches out. But I must admit, it was on my bucket list. I did want to do it. I'm turning thirty in um, at the end of July, so uh, um, I'm happy to tick it off. And uh, yeah, it feels like a you know a, a nice recognition of, of where I've got to.
1: Yeah, well, that's super excited. I, I unfortunately aged out of the group. So I've, I've missed that boat. But uh, who knows, maybe the 40 under 40. <laughs> but uh, I, I do think you're you're our first uh, 30 under 30 guests. So uh, super exciting times here for the podcast. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for today, talking kind of all things product management and I think we even had a splattering of live ops and other other good stuff we can kind of dig into. Um, but before we do that, uh, I always like to ask, you know, what's your story? Uh, how did you get into games and, and get to where you are today?
0: Oh, well, thank you for asking. It's, it's something I, I love to talk about. Um, you know, I think like most people, um, I, I'd always loved games, playing games, you know, being immersed in, in, the, in the kind of gamer culture as I was growing up. Um, but, you know, I never really knew you could get a job in games and and certainly the only jobs i knew about in games were like programming and um going to you know secondary school here in here in the uk just outside of london you're not really taught these things you do it so it was like you know microsoft excel um, Mm -hmm. and and how to maybe make a web page um but programming was like this dark art you know who are programmers what do they do how do they make a game and um so you know it just didn't really feel like a door and um I started off, you know, just getting like a job, earning money. I was working in, in HMV, which is like a, um, it was you know selling CDs, DVDs, and games. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I was selling. I was working the, the games part of the store, and you know, I started a little a little blog, and you know, I, I found that you can you can study. Game design at university and i was like wow that's a, that's amazing so um <laughs> that was a bit of a, a surprise to me honestly there wasn't much much education in that and uh so i went to university very typical um really loved it it kind of opened my eyes and got me um i guess get got my engine going about the art of making games uh, and you know i did really well at university but it didn't mean i could get a job i was i was practically unemployable you know i i knew a lot about game design academically and I'd done a, you know, a project in Unity and I could use Unity and I could use um, things like 3ds Max, but I wasn't very good. And my programming skills were still pretty rudimentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just that that leap into a job was really difficult. So from there, I, you know, I tried to get game design jobs. I did internships. Uh, but here in the UK, there's, there's not very good... Uh, um, employment protection around that, so quite often you're you're working for no money, um, and I just couldn't do it. It just went too deep in debt, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, you know, oh, I was this this is how it's going to end? I'm not gonna not gonna find a way to, to make games. And this is when the, the kind of indie games movement was really exploding. Mm-hmm. Things like Super Meat Boy, Dear Esther, Spelunky, you know, all showing that you can you can really make it and do it yourself. So um, I managed luckily to um, get a job as a games tester at Sega Europe that um, based in London and it was you know very little money it was like a three hour commute from where I was living um, so I did a lot of cycling which was good for my health but, um, but certainly not so nice in the winter and and that really opened some doors because you know I was working with game teams I was working on you know big games games like uh, um, Total War from uh, from the team at Creative Assembly working on some titles for for them Company of Heroes from Relic Dawn of War games that you know I played wow. and loved and um, learning about you know the actual way games are tested and how the team were making games. Um, I don't know. I just I, I started snatching up all these opportunities I could get anytime there was an opportunity to do you know something just outside of the, the day-to-day. Um, and, and all that cycling paid off. I um, I did like a charity cycling day um, at Brands Hatch, uh, famous racing track. Um, and the CEO was there, the COO from Sega Europe, cycling around on their like 9,000 pound carbon fiber bikes. They're on my like secondhand Peugeot. <laughs> But it was great because I got to meet these meet these people and, and pick their brains, and you know they they gave me really good advice and they they sort of pointed me in the right direction. And from there, you know, I've managed to um, move into a Ubisoft game studio in London. Um, Future Games of London is is the studio best known mm-hmm. for the, the Hungry Shark franchise, which is mm-hmm. almost at a billion downloads now. It's been around since wow. the start of the uh, start of the App Store. Um, And, you know, I started as a tester. And again, I kind of applied this, this mentality um, of any little opportunity I could get to learn and grow, I'd snatch it up. So I started off testing games, then I was testing technology, I was testing ad SDKs, I was testing CRM packages, Mm -hmm. and that got me uh, understanding more about the the business of games. Um, I had a a kind of mentor figure um, there. Who was the BI manager? Also called Aaron, which was quite nice, um, <laughs> maybe serendipitous. And um, you know, he kind of he taught me more about all of this. And you know, in testing packages like Upsite and Chartboost, I was learning, you know, how do you run a UA campaign? How do you mm. um, how do you make an offer? Uh, because I was testing the settings and seeing how they worked. You know, I was kind of sharing in that glory. You know, if we had a really good performing offer, we have seen better stats. It was my victory too because I made sure it worked. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I took that and you know I've, I've run with that uh, into a career in in live ops in MundStation and over the last sort of two three years working product management uh, up until now as as head of product management the studio. So really quick progression, which I know is is quite privileged. Um, but you know some credit to myself. You know I've asked for a lot, but I've, I've managed to prove it um, within yeah. Ubisoft and uh, yeah, I think. I guess how I've got here really is being able to recognize that there are opportunities, and then when you find them, just just go you know 100 miles an hour at them. Learn everything you can. Read all the books. Play all the games. Just just be a bit relentless about about mastering new skills. And uh, so far, that's worked out quite well for me.
1: <laughs> Dude, you know, I, I think uh, a week or two ago, I got a similar question of like, how did you learn so much? And I'm like, well, I, I literally spend so much of my time just always trying to learn stuff. Like I I literally have a stack of books right here of like, stuff on game economy and and game design and all sorts of things. And I try to read like all the blogs, watch all the video, like just like consume as much, like talk to as many smart people like you as possible. And if I can retain maybe 5% of everything that you say, you know, how much better am I going to be? So, yeah, I think that's so true, especially for people trying to get into games. Like once you get your foot in the door, you know, well, you've got to kill it at whatever, you know, you've been hired to do. But then there's going to be these like side opportunities. And the more that you can like jump on those things and just like. Learn as much as possible and prove that like you can do the, the next stage. You can just kind of advance very quickly, I think, uh, because people recognize wow, this person is awesome. You know, How much more can they do? And if they give you something more and you crush that too, well, can they do even more and more? And so that, that's super cool. So, Aaron, I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit because there was a, a session Tuesday or Wednesday from the, the Iron Source Level Up Conference, but what the hell does a product manager
0: even do? <laughs> Yeah, I love that talk. I really, really enjoyed that one. I shared that with, with so many people at work: product managers, levels, people, my boss, the MD. Um, because, yeah, I think um, it's it's hard to describe. And um, when I speak to other product managers, um, other people in product, everyone has a different answer. I think that the truth is that product manager is um, it's a bit like uh, like polyfiller when you're filling cracks in the wall. You've got like your game team. You, uh, you know the results you want or you've got like a market analysis or something and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to make the best X game or, you know, I've got an amazing team. What can they do? And the product manager on that team quite often is the person that helps you reach your goals. So in some setups, some studios, some publishers, some game teams, that can mean you know, a really data focused role um, and it can be very um, business focused and maybe not so creative. And then the other side of the spectrum, you know, I know people who are working in product management, and you know, they're working alongside like a, a head of insights, uh, and their job is is more about um, getting to answers and, and hypothesizing, and then using that that person to help with the analysis itself. So, um, depending on how large your team is, it can it can really stretch to cover a lot of things. But but for me, it always comes down to the idea is you know the product manager is the person ultimately that's responsible for helping your game hit the targets and they can do that as a leader as a supporting role very data driven more creative they can be writing spec they could be technical experts or they can be some some blend of things you know i know at zynga they like to break down pms into like are you a roadmap pm which is like do you design features and milestone things for your games are you a, a tech pm you know do you know how to make crossplay work do you understand SDK requirements do you understand first party requirements or are you like a you know like a data PM are you a MUM station expert do you know game mm-hmm. economies inside out and they kind of hire around those ideas and um, at smaller places you often find you kind of have to do it all um, yeah. and that's that's the interesting thing about the role is if you want to you can scale up your skills um, where you really know you're strong and there's always opportunities to like learn so for me I'm, I'm certainly no expert at game economies you know, I, I can I can do these things, but if you want an amazing like game economy, something like you know Eve Online, for example, uh-huh. get the expert in, get a game economy, <laughs> wizard. and um, you know I love to learn from people like that because they're so deep on their skill set. Whereas a product manager is usually a bit of a Swiss Army knife uh, type person, unless you're a, a big big team, you know, multiple Scrum teams. I'm sure you know if you work on on Call of Duty Mobile, you can probably be a PM on on just the store, um, <laughs> but on a game like mine, Hungry Shark World, Hungry Shark Evolution, as a PM, you're, you're covering the, the whole game, right?
1: Yeah. So for your studio, you kind of have like one PM per game, essentially.
0: Yeah, that's that's the structure we like. You know, we're um, we're still uh, sub 100 mm-hmm. people, um, and there's still like a like a quite a strong kind of indie DIY attitude there, and um, we certainly have, you know, I think like many people borrowed from the kind of Supercell. Uh-huh. culture of build a really strong team and then trust them to run it like a small business and yep. as a senior manager my role is more you know mentoring a pm coaching them helping them uh you know being that that person to ask the questions and bounce ideas with them and, and set them targets and goals and, and not yep. to you know say look let me handle three-fifths <laughs> of, of this puzzle and, and you can do the easy stuff so yeah one one pm per game is what we like um at the moment but i guess it really depends on on the scale of games we make if we have a you know, a million dollar a day yang, I'm sure we'll need more.
1: So I I was meeting with, uh, uh, I think she heads up uh, ad monetization uh, at, at a, another studio. And she was just kind of asking, like, how do you handle the working between like, you know, like your monetization team and your product team? Because it sounds like, you know, sometimes they kind of butt heads a little bit, which, you know, I, I, I recognize that you know, sometimes the product team is like, well, I just want to make fun features. And then I've got this ad team always telling me to add these SDKs that add all the, you know, conflictions in. And I say, well, you know, how I've seen this work really well is if you have an overarching vision, so somebody that is kind of setting and saying, this is where this game is going. This is how we're going to get there. You now have kind of this lens where, okay, if the monetization team wants to add in some new SDK, well, you can kind of, now, now say, well, is this going to help us get to that vision? Same thing with you know any sort of feature or event and things that we want to, under that lens. Is that going to help us get to where we want to go as quickly as possible and along the timelines that we want? Um, do you guys follow a similar sort of like you know here's the vision for the game you know a year or three years from now kind of approach?
0: Mm, yeah, no, no, totally, and it's it's really um, it's a really important part of making games today. Um, I remember when, when the studio first moved from the early days where it was very much like, you know, we're lucky to have found a, a bit of a zeitgeist hit in Mm Hungry Shark Evolution. And we're now kind of dealing with that success, Ubisoft acquisition, and then thinking about, you know, how are we going to make a game that can be operated for years uh, and leverages all of how players use and enjoy the product, uh, latest monetization strategies and, you know, grow this game once it's live. And, um. It was, a, it, was a, it was a rough ride and we struggled with that idea for a long time of, you know, before maybe a producer would be the one saying, look, this is where we're driving towards this this date or this you know, moment, mm-hmm. whether it's like Shark Week for us with Shark Games every summer. Um, and everything's kind of retro planned backwards. Whereas we had a product manager join um, back in around 2017 and always felt very siloed. Like product manager wants to do these things. Game team wants to do creative things you know, maybe you've got like a tech team that want to do technical things and <laughs> how you um, kind of agree on all of that. But we, we really struggled with that and it was a bit conflicting with multiple leaders. So um, what we what we operate now, what I think re- works really well is whether this person is a product manager or, you know, like a general manager or a game lead, game designer, it can be, I think, has to be based on who understands the team well. Um, but like this this notion of a product owner, so mm-hmm. Person with the vision for the game. And um, I've held that role before and you know I've helped to train others in the role. Uh, and I think it does suit um, product managers quite well because it is uh, about quantifying results um, and about leading people to a goal. But like I said, certainly in, in product management, you can be quite siloed. So mm-hmm. you also have to have the people skills and the experience of working on Uh, games in lots of different areas you have to understand the needs of different stakeholders like programmers design uh, and often you know there's that old anecdote of like business and design don't get along Um, (laughs) and and the reality is of course is it's it's actually just about having a vision um that the whole team believes in and that can be as simple as you know if we put this new sdk in we're going to be you know here are the projections for the revenue And if the whole team understand the game's performance intimately and understand how the bonus structure works, then it can be quite a a straightforward um, thing for people to believe in. You know, the game I'm working on is more successful, so I'm going to feel that benefit. That's quite a powerful powerful motivator, but it can also be, you know, the game's going to be healthier. It's going to be more profitable, which means the studio's safer, which means my job is (laughs) and ultimately I'm going to get to do, you know more exciting things like uh, bigger features and, and maybe you know a sequel or a new game. so you really have to understand your team and like you say, what I see working well is someone designated as that leader as that that person with a vision for a game and like you say the, the roadmap, the strategy we like to do a yearly product strategy because anything longer than that usually changes too much but each year with a financial year I like to have the product managers at the studio define what their goals are for 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 the game so we want to move retention in these areas Um, maybe they quantify it down to you know actual hard numbers maybe it's more ambiguous you know we want to you know eliminate some of the deficit sorry we Mm -hmm. want to create a deficit in our bugs we want to stop adding bugs every release you know we want to change ad mediation we want to you know do whatever it is we want to solve this problem with currency inflation you know and um, that process you know you usually have to speak to so many people on the team and become so familiar with with the game holistically mm-hmm. that you start to get that buy-in from the team because you've actually had these conversations. You're not just coming in and saying, you know, revenue plus 10%, uh-huh. here's how you do it, off you go, and I'll see you in free sprints time, which which is a bit of a trap when, uh, yep. when things are busy um, and you really think you've got the, the solution. When you guys uh,
1: do that kind of like yearly planning, which I think is great, um, do you guys use OKRs or or something else? Like, how do you kind of quantify and track that up? Because I'm I'm a big fan of saying, okay, at the end of the year, this is where I want to be. Working back from there, like, what are the steps that we need to be taking for the rest of the year so that we actually have a you know realistic chance to get there?
0: Yeah. So what I like to to do is um, what we call a release review. So, um, every game, uh, certainly every, every live mobile game is going to have multiple releases punctuated through the year. Some of them might be big updates. They might be smaller updates, might be slightly invisible to players. They could just be AB tests. Um, but it's important to always conclude, um, at the end of that process. Uh, so four weeks, six weeks after, did we meet the targets we set? So a, a product manager on a game will set their strategy for the year ahead. And then you will have these uh, updates, which are, are helping drive you towards these targets. So you might say, look, got an update. We're planning now for Q1 with production. And we know in this update, our focus is gonna be on first time user experience and early retention, because maybe we haven't been given that much love over the last year, We've been focusing on on payers and, and really senior returning players and, and and you know maybe acquiring users from certain cohorts. So um, that updates, that's the focus. That's how we're gonna start thinking about the backlog. And uh, ultimately, once that's developed, once released, we'll reflect on, you know, how did we stack up? Did we actually move the needle where we wanted to? If so, why? If not, why not? And um, that process means that you're, you're constantly having these discussions with the whole team. And it gives a great moment for, for the team to be part of those presentations as well. You can have your marketing, your community, your tech team, even your art team, you know, they can have a couple of slides to say, look, this is what I did. These are the skills I learned. It's a nice nice way to kind of, Shout out what people have done, even if you know the results aren't directly one to one with a person's action. And um, I find that if you take the time to do that whole end to end process, so working with a team on this is where we want to get to in a year. This is where we want to get to in this release. And then at the end of the release, you say, actually, this is where we got to. We we fell short here. We did all right there. We over. Uh, we excelled here. You know, like you you touched on the team start to understand that whole process and you'll find yourself having great conversations, really productive conversations. You know, right now I've got a programmer um, and he's so enthusiastic about performance. So any opportunity to um, tell me about how he thinks he can get, you know, 60 FPS, 90 FPS on the game, (laughs) he'll, he'll have that conversation. So, you know, we've, I like to enable that. I'll say, okay, that's, that's great. How do we do it? How long is it going to take? what sort of targets could you set? And you know that's a new exercise for, for mm-hmm. him. He's not been asked, Oh, will uh, having a uncapped frame rate actually lead to a quantifiable measurable thing? Will people play longer sessions if the frame rate's smoother? And, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately we don't know, but we're going to test it because the value of taking that time to do it. And for that person who's going to be on the team, you know, is a core part of the team uh, to understand the connection between work he's doing and the metrics on the other end is invaluable. And, as much as possible if people are always results driven results focused why are we doing this because we want to move this we want to hit this goal and um, the conversations are usually a lot lot easier and those stakeholder reviews about why you want to build this big epic feature people can buy into them a bit more because they've been with you on that journey they've seen you you know coach them and lead them on you know ux changes and lots of play testing because they've seen you know percentage points improvement here and and what that means for the game's performance so you know that's another thing to go back to the role of PM it's an educational role you can be there to help bridge the gap between Mm. what we do on a product team in making a game how people use it and you know how you can actually change that and you know everyone I know that that works on games loves that side of it to actually feel like they've made things better uh, and understand how they've done it Mm -hmm. you know to get good feedback from players whether it's directly or or from the metrics improving is is really addictive and people people really enjoy that side of the job.
1: So, you know, I feel like typically um, a lot of changes of like live running games are really, really data-driven. And, you know, I do X and I'm probably going to see Y. But I I think sometimes uh, it's easy to have kind of gone down a path in one direction. Like I often see this with uh, some like meta changes that were maybe like set that way on day one, but now we're like three years in and, and stuff needs to drastically change, or um, you know maybe my game has kind of become pay to win and I'm making a certain amount of money, but I've got this gut feeling that kind of says, you know, if I could drastically kind of shift this such that it was more accessible to everyone and it was less pay to win, I would probably be making more money than I am right now. I would probably have happier players and I'd probably have better engagement and retention. But in the the shorter term, if I'm trying to remove and change this pay to win to be less so, I'm probably going to take a pretty big hit like financially and stuff. And so if I'm following just the data, it's probably not going to get me there. But like, have you ever had to approach a problem like that? Curious, like what that was and how you, you know, actually execute and follow on something like that. Yeah, no,
0: like you say, you know, maybe, maybe not the exact anecdote, but certainly plenty of times in my career, um, I've been in a position where to get to where I want to get to is going to be a bit of a minefield. And it requires a bit of surgery on the game, and um, sometimes you get to use the scalpel, and you can maybe rebalance a spreadsheet, and that's quite neat. Sometimes you need to swing the sledgehammer, and you might break the game. Um, so what I like to what I like to do, what I've seen work well, um, pinch of salt. This this is you know maybe a, a strategy that can suit you on a live game, in a game earlier in development um, where you're more able to make bigger pivots. You you might be better off just just voting for that and going for a yeah. bigger pivot. But if you, if you want to demonstrate your hypothesis on a live game, try and find a way to do it in a really low scope way. So I'll give you an example from, um, from Hungry Shark World. Over the years of operation, it's five years live now, um, we added a lot of content, so much content. Actually, the user experience of the, the metagame shop is quite bad. It takes a long time because it's 3D models in the shop um, and they're not organized. Uh, certainly, the design wasn't um, written in such a way that expected to have, you know, 200 items in a long row. <laughs> so, you've got a bit of a horrible experience there. You're trying to find the item you want, they're not merchandised very well because of this. You know, it can be hard to find items and understand what they do. Um, and for a long time, we discussed okay, well. How do we resolve that? Because we had issues with discoverability, monetization on some of these items, you know, not so strong. So the obvious answer is, well, change user experience, change the UI. That's really costly to do. It's very time consuming. It's risky as well. Um, You Mm -hmm. could make things worse and it's going to be a long process. A-B testing, you know, play testing, um, surveying players, trying to work out, you know, are you actually making this better? Um, The flip side to that, of course, is what if we had less? What if we kind of, roll back the clock and say there was less available in the shop it would be easier to use and items would be more discoverable but you see there it's, it's like you say the path to that conclusion is very dangerous how do you mm-hmm. actually go from 200 items to 40 odd items without screwing up your, your game economy um yeah. and losing losing money right no no one wants to explain why the pnl is is weak this month because of some big idea you had so um <laughs> to get there what what i did is um because the game's quite configurable um, always do that for making game make sure you can change a lot without a new binary please <laughs> but um, so we can change a lot about how the how the game is uh, set up what items are available prices the logic of unlocking them etc um so i said you know that, that's something i can do i i can i can you know build uh, a little test here so um, it was really laborious doing all of the database work but i did that i put together a little little deck for the team gave them a build um and you know we sat in a this pre-pandemic sat in a meeting room and we just just went through it and i said look this is what i'm trying to create here if we go from this many items to what i called a, a curated shop so the idea of giving people more of what they want more unique value less mm. items that look similar do similar things but maybe some are slightly more valuable some are slightly less valuable different currencies you know I, my, my hypothesis is that we won't see um, material impact in uh station we won't see it go down but we will then have a more um operable system something that we can build on Mm -hmm. so going through that process with the team first using your team as a bit of a sounding board to say you know what do you think and hearing their feedback and making a few iterations is a really low risk way to explore those ideas and then from there, a b testing so starting to roll out these changes to small pockets of users um and go along the path of you know Can we solve that and uh you know the the spoilers there is that yes that did work and for us that was that was the good solution is to strip back the shop so we can rebuild five years live rather than overhaul the games ui spend you know a lot of sprint work a lot of people's energy and then maybe find out it's not so good when we start ab testing Mm -hmm. try the other things first try the the low cost the low risk options first do it in a safe data controlled way and you can find out. You can find out your limits. You know, if I would have made a really big impact in like revenue per paying user because some of the more expensive items were gone, I'd know that pretty quickly. It'd be for 10% of the audience, and I can stop. If you have a like you say a big hypothesis, and the only way to validate it is to build the whole thing, you need to press pause and think: How can I break it down? How can I answer this question by you know sending a little Trojan horse into enemy lines rather than? Building the whole thing, building the whole fleet, and then attempting world domination and changing my KPIs explosively because it's, it's too risky. And, and understanding your players that intimately takes a long, long time. So better to find ways to do it quick and kind of yeah, a little bit rough around the edges on a live game than than to um, really dig into it, get it perfect, only to start testing and, and see you, you've wasted a you know a lot of a uh, lot of development budget.
1: I love that a lot. Um, actually it reminds me, uh, we did a, a deconstruction of Genshin impact, uh, probably like six months ago now, but, uh, as, as we were digging in, um, so Genshin had like a hundred million dollar budget, um, which to be fair, I think is kind of low for what you got out of it. Uh, but you know, a hundred million dollars. Uh, but before they committed that, uh, what they actually did in their existing game, the, I think it's like HI3. They actually ran this uh, kind of open world exploration type test. It was pretty janky, like not as well built out and stuff like that. But if you look at the revenue, that like it was like the biggest spike in revenue that that game had, which was already a pretty successful game. Um, biggest spike of revenue, and it just helped confirm. And very shortly after that test went out, Genshin you know really went under underway full development mode. Um, so very interesting how you can kind of like use these different elements to to validate as quickly as possible now granted that was probably a fairly large test and effort for them to build out and do but it was much smaller and much less risky than committing all those you know resources towards building genshing before uh you know they actually had some sort of validation so it's kind of like how do i find the realistic minimal viable validation test Um, and kind of do that thing. So I at least have some sort of data to base my test on and nothing is ever guaranteed. But um, you know, the better chance you have the better, better potential things would be. I did want to switch gears a little bit because I I saw an interesting post that you had a few weeks ago, which was about extinction mode, which is something that you guys uh, uh, popped up. I I believe you said something like I got to hear a successful late game economy reboot and content drop. So I haven't heard of too many games that have been able to successfully reboot their late game economy. So I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, what was Extinction Remote about? How was your economy kind of broken before? How did this come in and, and fix it? Because I think this is something that a lot of games are struggling with. How do I approach actually fixing some economy issues that I now realize that I have, but are, are challenging to, to work through?
0: No, I'm really glad you asked me. Um, um, yeah, it's great collaborative effort as well. Uh, I won't take all the, all the glory. I'll take some. For sure but uh you know couldn't couldn't have done that without um a great lead designer helping me and and a whole team really on board with like a a prototyping mentality to do something new um so this all started um way back in 2018 um and the game was getting you know a couple of years live certain amount of of content at a certain cadence operation and it, it was starting to feel um the issues around the economy the economy had been designed in quite a linear scaling way so start off with a small shark you end up with a very big shark and the currencies in the game and the the xp in the game and needing to provide you know constant better new playable characters meant that it was getting to the point where you were earning so much soft currency from playing the game that it was losing a lot of its value Um, and it meant that the pinch points you have very neatly lined up in the early game creating monetization and friction just weren't there you know so like you like we touched on uh, you know a little earlier uh, when you and i were chatting um sometimes you can have a game with really good conversion and then there's not much follow-up purchasing um and certainly that's an area where if your economy is really tight at the start and then blows up because you've given players a lot of value um we were seeing that so in 2018 we tried a lot we tried a lot of uh quite invasive changes big economy changes all with the the kind of Vision of let's fix the economy, um, and we failed. We totally failed. Everything failed. Um, and it's cathartic to say that at the time it was very stressful. Um, and this is something I've I've seen a lot from from you know my friends in the industry, people doing the PM role elsewhere. Um, actually, repairing your economy, and tuning it, is really hard work. Like like I said, um, you know, as a PM, if you're really really strong on your economy skills and you've built your economy in such a way that you really understand it and you know how to change certain parts of that equation, you know, earning rates, all of this, and you can dial it up and down and you're kind of, you know, like a, a, an early 2000s hacker film in there, you know how to do it, then um, maybe you can repair your economy. But as naturally happens in games, once they're live, you get to a point where you realize you've broken parts of your economy. And mm-hmm. the, the tight game you, you got through soft launch and you launched, doesn't exist anymore. And what you have now is a bit of a Frankenstein monster um, and parts of the economy are good, parts are horrible, um, but you have to keep adding power um, yeah. to, to keep your, your returning players and your returning spenders happy. So I actually, um, I went to um, a conference organized by Supercell and Space back in 2019, it's called Game Fest. Started off in Helsinki and they started to do a couple of London versions. Hopefully we'll see that post COVID as well. It'd be nice to have that <laughs> one back. Um, and there was a fantastic talk. Um, I forget now, um, the name uh, of the person, but she was, um, working on Farmville uh, and she was sharing an anecdote from, uh, sorry, not Farmville, um, Hay Day. my bad, um, working on Heyday, um, and shared uh, an anecdote that, you know, heyday has been around for a long time. I think at the time it was, you know, seven, eight years live, um, and had struggled with the economy uh, as well. As as you level up your buildings, some of these currencies start to become ridiculous uh, or you know have little little value. And, and the monetization there starts to drop off. So she was talking about how you know they tried to repair the economy and they'd always get kind of three-fifths of the way there. They'd make some things better, but they make some things worse. And it really resonated. I really felt like oh, I've been there. Um, so she said something that at the time, it just sort of like connected a neuron in my head, like, oh my God, I, I can't believe I haven't thought about this. And she said, don't try and fix your economy. Understand that your economy works until a certain point. Work out when it stops working, and then change it. So, what they did in Heyday is, after a certain point, the normal route of progression—earning, you know, corn and other resources and standard currencies—becomes less important. It's more about trading what you've farmed. So, if you want a fancy new building, you've got to grow a t- certain type of fruit. Um, and it changes. New currencies emerge a secondary economy starts. So you have this almost like uh, your economy growing and then suddenly those currencies become less valuable because your new currency you've added, Mm -hmm. your new economy you've built that you know how to control kicks in. So that was the the kind of light bulb moment. And I started to work with the team on this um, and we said, well, yeah, what if instead of trying to fix the late game economy and the currency inflation, we just added a new end game mode is way harder with really cool rewards you have to use all of that inflated currency play it so if you've got hundreds of thousands of, of soft currency of course it's not going to be very valuable to buy a new shark with so the new sharks you don't buy with it you have to earn a new currency and to earn that currency you have to convert it you have to play a new mode um, and that's extinction mode so it started off with this idea of what could we do to transfer those balances into a new currency? What could be the modifier to go from you know, a million coins to 1,000 pearls is what we settled on. And what we, we did is we built something that we could deeply control. So a Hungry Shark world, um, the way it works is quite arcadey. Survive as long as you can. And of course it gets harder and yeah. there are you know monetized options to revive and obviously a lot of meta game about trying to survive as long as possible, getting better equipment, better sharks. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't end. So as much as you want to play, you can keep earning, you can keep inflating your balances. Um, so we built this mode from the start with the idea it has a time limit. If you can survive five minutes, you'll get this reward. 10 minutes, you'll get that reward. 15 mm. minutes, you'll, you'll get the big reward. Um, and the currency you put into play, you get better rewards on the other end. So you want to win, but it's really hard. <laughs> um, to make it hard for veteran players who have mastered the game, we thought, We're going to have to do something new. So we we did a lot of prototyping around this, and the game design team really took the lead on it. But um, ultimately, what we do is we change your experience. So you're playing the game, and then it mutates. Hence the kind of extinction mode motif. So uh, every 30 seconds, it's going to say, you know, we're going to change the spawners. We're going to make your health smaller. We're going to make it so you know, a giant helicopter appears and starts attacking you and you've got to deal with these kind of emergent things. Kind of taking that little bit of um, uh, the Archero roguelike Binding of Isaac mentality of, yeah. you know how to play the game, but in order to always win, you have to be ready for different things to happen. And uh, so that's that's the mode, that's where it came from. We've iterated on that over the whole year, used the data, but it's always remained one thing, which is very controllable from the start, it's got ironclad rules. You put in a certain amount of currency, like you're playing able pool or golf clash. If you win, you get a certain amount of currency back and we control that experience in the middle. It's fixed length duration. We know how difficult we can make it. We can tune it up. We can tune that down. But ultimately, we can convert all of your economic progress to one point into the other end. And the reason it works is the sharks you can buy with the pearls are just so cool. The art team, all the user research, all the play testing, they're like you know mutant characters from the franchise they look incredible and um that gives the players the motivation to say you know what i'm going to conquer this new thing and i'm going to going to convert my savings into yeah. it uh, and it really kickstarted the game's performance on the, on the tail end uh, able to you know monetize players that long since had any reason to spend in the game and it's, it's been a real success story for us the last 12 months that's really cool that's really cool
1: so i i know that um in in many ways, the World of Warcraft uh, economy has gotten broken uh, in in almost every expansion, you you could argue. Um, But uh, what they seem to do of late is, well, when I release a new expansion, it is a chance for me to just kind of Cut ties with whatever I had before and introduce, uh, you know, whatever new thing that I want that I now have more control over. Players have to kind of start resetting, going through again. So even if you had a bunch of stuff from before, chances are it doesn't really translate too much into, you know, where we are today. So you kind of get that like reset. I don't think I've ever seen a mobile game that has operated for a long time actually use that sort of mantra too. But do you think that type of thing? could work. I, I think the main advantage is that like with World of Warcraft, they've got, you know, a year or two to make this entirely new expansion experience. Whereas like with mobile games, you're kind of doing an iterative approach. Um, you know, curious what you would you think about that? Yeah,
0: I mean, um, I, I think it can work, especially um, when you look at some of these like live forever games, games like Subway Surfers, Dragon City, um, some of the Supercell games like Clash of Clans, right? They've all dabbled mm-hmm. in this a little bit. Like, You play up until a certain point and then there's like a building or, you know, a mechanic that's introduced that means that everything you've been doing up until that point is kind of less important. And you might do a few of those game loops to get certain currencies um, or to level up new characters or whatever it might be. But um, your new progression kind of uses different currencies, variables, XP's. Um, And you see that a lot as well in live ops and event design, right? Um, Take Merge Dragons, right? Been around for a good while now, still doing great. One of my favorite games of all time on mobile. And um, what I love there is it takes a little bit of that philosophy with the events. It's like, doesn't matter how amazing your home base is, doesn't matter what merge chain objects you have, how much gems you have, when you go into the event, it's a whole new board, and your progress starts and ends when the event ends. So you can obviously pay to speed up, you can buy bundles to get new merge items. They're very smart on the MundStation. Obviously, you want the dragons. Um, they're very collectible items and then the time limit is very uh, there. It's a pressing factor but it takes a little bit of what you're talking about on a smaller scale so the idea of everything you've been doing stops you do something new the difference of course in mobile is that we have our vip players we have people that are really deeply invested and we don't want to say your collection's worthless because we don't have million subscribers, how many World of Warcraft has, <laughs> and 20 years of operations. But but we're definitely, you know, I think edging that way, the way the market's going, the fact that you yep. do have games that are just as deep and big as World of Warcraft at the top of the top grossing charts now, mm-hmm. can have experiences and players deeply involved with the game that you might be able to communicate that everything you've done to this point, we are going to stop and we're going to give you a fresh start. And that's exciting. I think now that we're getting to the point where games are going to be 10 years live maybe some players that have been playing it for that long are, are kind of ready for it they're ready for a fresh start mm-hmm. we see on the on hunger shark world a game that's only five years old from time to time someone will message uh, customer support and they'll say can you reset my progress I want to start again I love doing it uh, all over that that idea of prestiging in a call of duty game right I think <laughs> that there's a there's a psychological thing that people love to do the journey and when they get to the end of it um, which obviously in live ops we hope they never do and they they keep playing but Inevitably, you've got your your super dedicated players. When they get there, they they sort of feel like it's not as fun as when I was climbing up the mountain. Now I'm here and I'm the champion. I'm the best at the game. Where's the challenge? Where's the motivation? Um, I'm a bit like that in the games I play. You know, Mm -hmm. I I put thousands of hours into games and then the moment I get the thing I want, I'll probably never play it again. Um, (laughs) And if there's a a way to say, aha, you think the classic way, right? Let's take the Mario example. Princess is in another castle. That idea that that feeling that psychology i think applies to any game a mobile game And so that notion of like you say probably not expansions because that world of warcraft structure doesn't really work on mobile at least not yet maybe we'll see a an mmo with that kind of structure but, but i doubt it but to say to people um you know here's the the game you've been enjoying you've conquered it but here's the next bit and everything you've got to that point is just the beginning um and to and you should be ready for a a fresh start um i think that's that's really exciting that that can definitely work i've seen it work on games i've seen and you know i've played games that that dabble with it as well
1: yeah that's great I was curious. So switching gears a little bit um, back when you were a live operations manager, um, you kind of mentioned you used quantitative and qualitative data to improve live performance. Um, what does that mean? You know, in, in practice, I'm, I'm curious how you actually went about doing that uh, for folks that are, Oh, that sounds really great. How do I actually do that?
0: Yeah. So I, I, I guess disclaimer that I'm, I'm not a researcher uh, and the the details You know, maybe I'll butcher the definition of some of these words here. Um, But, you know, for for me, what that means is um, the quantity of data is the hard stuff, right? Looking at the game's performance in a a granular way, this number of players, this percentage of them hit this thing. They don't. This percentage of players retain. This is what our monetization looks like or does not You know, this is our, you know, our cycle of players in and out through the the week. Um, You know, our KPIs look like this. You know, these are the targets we want to reach. So um, if we take that economy example, we want to reduce people's balances by a certain percentage. We know this is how they earn. So you can start to model it. And that's the quantitative data informs it. If we see that, you know, across progression, coin balances go like this. And then at a certain point, they, they really increase the velocity. That's data that informs decisions. So, OK, maybe that's not right. Maybe maybe it's not wrong, but it's certainly unexpected. And then the qualitative side is much less well i guess to use that analogy of hard and soft so for me that's more about player motivation understanding comprehension and feeling so Mm. it can be as simple as speaking to your players if you're lucky enough to have an active discord or or reddit page just reading it and understanding how people feel about what you're doing that's qualitative data that's giving you uh, essential context to what you're doing you know you might have seen okay my average revenue per paying user went up but Maybe a small group of players hate that. And that's a little bit of insight that you can use. Um, But what I really like to do is do a lot of player surveying. You can survey your players whenever. And if they're playing the game, it's a great moment to ask them how they're feeling. So um, I think actually I was watching your talk yesterday and you said, after someone makes a purchase, ask them a question. It's It's as simple as that. Did you get what you wanted out of that purchase? Yes, I did. I really loved it. How many people answered like that versus how many people said, you know what, actually wasn't what I expected.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: really useful qualitative data, um, at least in you know my definition. So, surveying your players about how they feel about the game at important moments, having CRM technology that you can say, okay, um, this is what people do, but how do they feel about it? So, being able to you know ask them after the purchase of something really expensive how they feel asking them, you know, maybe if you're predicting when they're churning and saying, you know, how do you feel about the game? Would you rate the game? All of these things can give you um, really useful qualitative data. Um, And, you know, don't rule out the obvious stuff like store reviews. Um, Not a lot of people put a whole lot of stock into store reviews in 2021. It's good for ASO, but it's really hard to filter. And, you know, quite a lot of it is like one star. I hate your game, which isn't particularly useful. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know certainly on the google side you can really filter things down um and for us you know it can be as simple as when we're like rolling out a new version looking at favorable and unhelpful reviews and seeing like okay there's some patterns are there some trends um and often that can that can lead you to insight that the hard data can struggle to pinpoint um if people are playing shorter first game loops and you don't know why maybe you look at like what's killing them how often or some other gameplay values you might still be scratching your head you might be surprised you just could ask you know a couple hundred people in discord does the new game feel different and i'll go yeah this one new enemy is really hard um or you know you've, you've broken this bit that you didn't realize and and sometimes that data um is, is easily missed and especially in live ops um famous quote right perception is reality uh, and that's very true for your players true um very very true they, they don't know everything you put into it. They don't know your intentions. If it's a little bit buggy or well executed um, or, you know, ultimately you're you're trying to pull on some quite hard levers to monetize them or retain them and they're fighting against that compulsion, uh, you might miss the target just because you, you're not in tune, you're not in step with your players. So always look at the, the quantitative data, stuff you're collecting on players, all of the UA metrics sample, but ask your players how they feel. Ask, ask your colleagues how they feel um, and, and do your best to try and, that player hat on from time to time you know is this fun is this enjoyable um these are questions you know game designers are often asking themselves and pms you know sometimes i forget i forget to ask those questions because you know i'm looking at charts today (laughs) and i want to make them go up so it's it's easy to, to forget
1: yeah no, that's so true. I think that is it fun? Is it enjoyable? Is like the key. Thing. I mean, that's really what our players are asking themselves all the time because they've got a million other games and things that they could do to be, you know, entertaining themselves with. So I, I love that. I think the uh, the final thing that I wanted to cover today it's just a little bit on like roadmapping. And if you have any like lessons learned or tips and tricks for folks that are trying to get better at, you know, how do I effectively plan my roadmap, keep to it or make changes to it if I need to?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And I was, um, well, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe our viewers don't know. <laughs> I was just just doing some roadmapping before we, we jumped on. So this is very fresh. Um, <laughs> my advice is never roadmap alone. Um, really tempting to sit down and be like, I know I'm going to plan it all out and it's going to work. Um, so have some experts with you domain experts like your lead programmer your lead UX designer your you know uh, UA campaign manager whoever it might be get some get some opinions and of course never forget your producer or your project manager someone that deeply understands if you have staff available Mm -hmm. how many you know holidays are coming up what releases and you know store uh, things could be coming public holidays whatever it might be um, so, so try and do it with a buddy, get a roadmap buddy. I love to do it with my, my producer and all the product managers that I train and put on projects. I always say producer, product manager, make the roadmap. Never the other two people separate because you need those two um, viewpoints. Um, second of all, pick a tool that suits you. There are loads of tools out there. Loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. Um, you can use Jira, if you use Jira. You can use Google Sheets. You know, you, you can draw it on a notepad if you want. Whatever suits you is the best way to do it because roadmaps are, by their nature, quite abstract. They're, you know, things in a sequence that make sense. So you you reach an arbitrary target for a video game, which is already a bit of an esoteric product that you can't really feel. So having something you understand and that feels good, that's why I really like doing on paper or, or in Excel, just because these are things I'm using all the time and I understand and they feel chunky and real. And that can help to visualize for me what am I doing when and and why Um, and of course you know work work backwards from important dates Um, luckily enough in, in Ubisoft you know we've got a lot of visibility on things that are happening movie releases new game launches there's competition of course between the studios for you know who might be able to be featured on the store for example but it's all very useful context so have that calendar view of what's coming up you know when do I want to plan an update for is it is it going to be possible to pitch Apple for store featuring or Google for store featuring since Google has um, you know, a mandatory 12 weeks between times they'll consider you for featuring. Um, so important factors to consider. Is there, you know, a new film coming up or a new game launching that maybe will, for your audience, renew some interest? Do you have characters in the works or systems in the works that potentially riff on it? Yeah. And of course, you know, never forget that those fundamentals, like your costs, just having your um, median or your average man-month cost is so helpful. How much does my game team cost to run for one month on average? How long is this thing going to take to build? Ask a few experts, and you can start to work out quite quickly. Does this make sense to do it this way? You know, should I stretch out? Should I build a little bit here? Should I test a couple of features? Um, and I think if if you follow those rules. You'll be able to get something down. But as I said right at the start, if you're going to plan a roadmap together with people, then the other thing you absolutely must do, show it to people and prepare variations. <laughs> you know, you're going to get feedback. You're going to have to change it. It might be because of unexpected things like Google's upcoming version of app tracking transparency, for example. That could that could ruin your roadmap for for December January maybe <laughs> um, or um, you know it could be as simple as you, unfortunately you're finding out maybe someone's leaving the studio and they're a key part of your team or you know you might have time off coming up so um, have a couple of variants plan out what what you think with someone else maybe a producer project manager makes sense show it to the team get their input um, and try and try and get some some sign-off and consensus and um, remember of course that it's not it's not a stone tablet that you have to follow. If you're working to a certain timeline, things change, feel like you can change a roadmap and use a tool that lets you do that. Um, be careful. There are a lot of bespoke roadmapping tools out there. I won't name names that look great, <laughs> but make it really, really difficult to, at a moment's notice, change, make three or four different variants. And uh, some of the, the essential tech out there, like Microsoft Excel, um, doesn't lock you into to those ways of thinking. So, <laughs> Remember, you you always trade off flexibility for for visual clarity and and nice features. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think those sort of things, you can build a good roadmap.
1: Love it. Cool. Well, Aaron, I only have one more question for you, which is the unofficial question because we Mm -hmm. are in the Mastering Retention podcast, uh, which is, you know, what's one tip or trick you've learned over the years to help increase retention? How do you keep players around?
0: Love it. Fantastic question. Um, I would say um, above everything else that I've tried, any particular change, Understand your players, do absolutely everything you can to understand your players. Right now, I spend lots of time in Discord uh, as a way to, to help understand our really expert players. And remember that your role on a game is to give players more of what they want. It's not to fit them into some shape. Retention doesn't increase because you made the game a different shape and now they'll retain better. Retention will increase because you've given them more purpose, more reason to play whether that's technical improvements, more fun, you know, more hooks to keep them playing, <laughs> but ultimately get in the, the, the mind of your players, all the different personas and give them some, some reason to play and, and be honest about that. Um, don't be, um, you know, hard-nosed about it. it, as tempting as that might be. That's great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. This has been uh,
1: really awesome. Uh, If folks do have any questions for you, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you?
0: Yeah, very welcome to add me on LinkedIn. It's Aaron Morley. Um, Or if you'd like to, um, do we have comments for this? I honestly don't know. Uh, But we'll we'll go
1: with LinkedIn for now. And uh, if we do have comments and stuff, I... I think it depends on where you're consuming your podcast because like, I don't know if Apple or Spotify, I don't know, but maybe we'll we'll explore it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, LinkedIn's good. Cool. All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Tom.